0: The History Channel original podcast.
1: History this week, December eleventh, eighteen sixty-two. I'm Sally Helm. Four o'clock in the morning. A heavy fog lies over the Rappahannock River. It's cold, about twenty degrees. And small groups of Union Army engineers begin a laborious task. They're trying to build a series of bridges. They maneuver boats into place, side by side, and then lay down long planks between those boats, making a pontoon bridge. The plan is that 100,000 Union soldiers will cross these bridges into the town of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and take it over. It's a key battle, not just for military reasons, but also for political ones. President Lincoln has just put out a preliminary version of the Emancipation Proclamation, which will declare that all enslaved people in Confederate states are free. But to make that proclamation a reality, he needs a military victory behind him. The foggy weather is good news for the Union. Because on the other side of the Rappahannock, the Confederate army lies in wait. They're hidden in houses and gardens and churches and behind stone walls, watching that foggy river, waiting for a clear shot. Around five o'clock in the morning, one Union engineer, Captain Wesley Brainerd, is standing in the middle of the water at the front end of the bridge. He's looking towards the Confederate shore when the fog briefly lifts. He writes... I saw what for the moment almost chilled my blood. A long line of arms moving rapidly up and down. Confederate guns pointed right at him. The fog quickly covers them again, but he knows his men are in trouble. Soon after... Brainerd is now in a fog of bullets. He writes... They went whizzing and spitting by and around me, pattering on the bridge, splashing into the water, and thugging through the boats. All around Brainerd, bodies are falling into the river. The wounded are crawling to shore. Quote, in a few moments, all of us were off the bridge, all except the dead. These first bloody moments are a sign of things to come. The Confederate Army is in an incredibly strong defensive position in Fredericksburg. By the time this battle is over, they'll have picked off over a thousand Union soldiers in one of the worst defeats of the Civil War. Today, a Union Army disaster. How does the defeat at Fredericksburg threaten the future of the Emancipation Proclamation and Abraham Lincoln's very presidency? And how
2: does Lincoln manage to save both? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
1: But in his time, his stance on slavery was more complicated. He was personally opposed to the institution. He'd written that he hated it and called it a monstrous injustice. But as he takes office and confronts the threat of secession, Lincoln is clear. He is not going to try to end slavery in the southern states.
0: He begins his presidency saying that he has no desire to free the slaves, that he has no inclination to free the slaves, that he has no legal authority to interfere with the institution of slavery.
1: That's Professor John Madison of John Jay College. He's written a wide-ranging book about the Battle of Fredericksburg and its impact on many famous American characters. And one thread that he follows is the story of Abraham Lincoln and emancipation. Lincoln, the candidate, believed the president had no legal authority to end slavery in the states that already had it. But by the time he takes office, things have already changed. Seven states have seceded from the union. They want to protect the institution of slavery at all costs. And in something of an irony, Lincoln sees that secession as evidence that he might now be legally allowed to end slavery in those states.
0: The slaveholding states kind of shoot themselves in the foot because when they withdraw from the Union, they've basically withdrawn themselves from the pro slavery protections of the Constitution. And that then becomes kind of the legal window through which Lincoln can start looking at emancipation.
1: Lincoln still says that his number one goal is not to end slavery, but to keep the Union together. To do that, he needs to win the war. In July of 1862, a little over a year into the fighting, he goes down to visit the Union troops in Virginia
0: and he sees that the morale is excellent, but that uh, the army has been substantially reduced by casualties and disease, and it's becoming clear to him that the path to victory in the war is going to be a good deal easier. In fact, it may become possible if the southern states are no longer able to rely on their enslaved labor.
1: Enslaved people aren't fighting as soldiers for the Confederacy, but they are being forced to do other labor for the Confederate military — digging ditches, growing food that feeds the army.
0: And Lincoln realizes that if he announces the emancipation of the slaves in the southern seceded states, that this announcement of emancipation may prompt those enslaved African Americans to refuse to obey
1: that would weaken the Confederate forces. This justification for emancipation only applies to the seceded Southern states. The eventual proclamation won't free enslaved people in the few Union border states where slavery still exists. Lincoln doesn't want to alienate those allies. But in July of 1862, right after that visit to Virginia, he makes his big decision.
0: It's the middle of the hot Washington summer, when Lincoln has what I argue is this epiphany and makes the first move toward the drafting of an Emancipation Proclamation.
1: Lincoln is riding in a carriage alongside two members of his cabinet, Navy Secretary Gideon Wells and Secretary of State William Seward.
0: And it's a strange occasion because they happen to be on their way to a funeral for the very young son of the Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton. And this funeral is going to carry the body of young James Stanton to the same burial ground where the remains of Lincoln's son, Willie Lincoln, had been temporarily interred.
1: 11-year-old Willie Lincoln had died in February of typhoid. He was loosely a casualty of the war, he probably got typhoid because Union soldiers encamped in D.C. had maxed out the city's sewage capacity. Willie likely drank contaminated water. And to Professor Madison's mind, it's impossible that Lincoln isn't thinking of Willie when he chooses this strange moment to announce a huge political move, emancipation. He says, "It's time." The two secretaries, Wells and Seward,
0: They're a little bit surprised because they have never heard Lincoln talking this way before, Uh, but they don't voice very strong objection.
1: Secretary Seward is one of Lincoln's closest confidants. Even though he'd actually run against the president in 1860 and lost, Seward took a more radical abolitionist stance in that election. He's long been against the institution of slavery.
0: So Seward is a man whom Lincoln trusts greatly, and who is you know, considered by many essential to the administration.
1: Seward doesn't voice any objection in the carriage ride that day. But a few days later, Lincoln calls his cabinet together in the second floor library of the White House.
0: He basically says to them, look, I've already decided that there is going to be an Emancipation Proclamation. That question is not up for debate. The only thing that we have to talk about now is how politically we're going to accomplish this in the most effective way.
1: And Seward speaks up to caution the president. He says,
0: Uh, We're not yet sure, Mr. President, whether we're winning this war.
1: The public isn't sure either.
0: And if we move too quickly, we run the risk of looking like we're desperate that we're doing this kind of a sort of a a last-ditch effort to save the North's military cause. Can we please wait a bit so that we'll have a victory or two behind us that can show the American public that we can make this proclamation stick?
1: Lincoln trusts Seward, and he agrees. He sits on the proclamation for a few months until September of 1862, after the Battle of Antietam.
0: What happens at Antietam is a lot of bloodshed.
1: For the Confederacy and the Union.
0: It's not really a victory for either side, but Lincoln is desperate for something that looks like a victory.
1: And at Antietam, the Union did have some success driving the Confederate troops back. So Lincoln has just enough political capital to announce that the Emancipation Proclamation will be signed the following January 1st. 1863. So he sort of followed Seward's advice, but not quite. There's still a good bit of doubt about whether the North is winning this war. But Lincoln has gone ahead and made his big announcement anyway. So now he's in even more need of a victory, to show people that the Union is strong, and to give the Emancipation Proclamation teeth.
0: And so that's why... In large part, the path to the Battle of Fredericksburg uh, begins to be undertaken.
1: Lincoln wants to be aggressive. And so one thing he does is replace the leader of his troops in Virginia. Virginia is a strategically important area because the Confederate capital is in Richmond, and Virginia is also the wealthiest and most populous Confederate state. He brings in a man named Major General Ambrose Burnside to replace Major General George McClellan.
0: In contrast to McClellan's massive ego, Burnside is a very humble man. Burnside, in fact, keeps telling people, don't pick me because I don't think I'll be up for this job.
1: By the way, quick tangent, Burnside is known at the time for these distinctive side whiskers, what we today in his honor call sideburns. And despite his humility, he's also known for being an aggressive military leader. He had recently proved himself at the Battle of Antietam.
0: And so he looks like just the perfect replacement for McClellan, and oh boy, was that a big mistake.
1: Lincoln won't know that until it's too late. Burnside pitches a risky plan to push into the Confederate-controlled town of Fredericksburg. He tells Lincoln, the best way to do it is to cross a 400-foot-wide river, the Rappahannock, on pontoon bridges those bridges made of boats.
0: He's got this great idea of these pontoon bridges. They're going to work fantastically.
1: Lincoln is worried this will all take too long. But he agrees anyway. Burnside gets a message from the White House, saying,
0: The president has just assented to your plan. He thinks it will succeed if you move rapidly. Otherwise, not.
1: And unfortunately, Lincoln's worry was exactly Right. It takes a while to get the more than 100 pontoon boats they need. In the whole DC area, there are only about 12. Plus, there are some miscommunications.
0: And so delay just piles up on top of delay. And by the time Burnside is finally ready to build his pontoon bridges, the moment has largely been lost.
1: On the other side of the Rappahannock, the Confederate forces are ready. Huge numbers of them have gathered in Fredericksburg. They've dug protective ditches, staked out the high ground, stationed themselves in houses along the riverbank. On the foggy night of December 10th, a Confederate commander on horseback is patrolling beside the Rappahannock when he begins to hear sounds from the Union side, a murmur of activity as they prepare to cross. He puts out the word. The Confederate soldiers get into place. And early the next morning... Union Captain Brainerd and other Union troops begin to take heavy fire. General Burnside, in response, starts to shoot cannons into the town of
0: Fredericksburg. It's the first time in the war that either army really starts targeting what would be considered to be civilian targets.
1: Meanwhile, some of the men down at the Rappahannock have to abandon their bridges and shuttle across the river in the pontoon boats themselves.
0: In these cumbersome, awkward, ugly boats.
1: On the other side, fighting begins in the streets. At the end of that first day, there are many Union casualties. But the worst day for the Union comes two days later, on December 13th. The Confederate soldiers are dominating the high ground. And they're protected by a wide stone wall.
0: The Union troops... They attack and attack and attack and attack all the way until sundown. And during that entire time, there's not a single Union soldier who gets within 50 yards of the wall. It's just an absolute slaughter. It's one of the signal military catastrophes of the entire Civil War.
1: By that evening, over 12,000 Union soldiers have been killed, wounded, or captured. Almost two-thirds of the men who perish die trying to reach that stone wall. The Confederate side sees about half that number of casualties. General Burnside is watching his plans crumble, and the only thing he can think to do is keep pushing.
0: Burnside is almost mad with grief and anguish, and he says that he's going to go in there and he's going to lead the men himself, and he almost has to be physically restrained by his generals, who see that you know, in the heat of the moment, Burnside is falling back on the only really reliable quality that he has, and that is his courage.
1: But his generals eventually convince him that the Union troops have to stand down. It's a catastrophic failure. And Burnside doesn't want his boss in Washington to know what's happened.
0: It's sad to say, but Burnside is almost like the little kid who's broken the vase and is gonna try to hide it as long as he can so that he can try to fix the situation.
1: He orders that all telegraphic communication with DC be cut off. Lincoln and his cabinet members have no idea what's happened in Fredericksburg. Until finally, a newspaper reporter named Henry Villard walks into the White House. He'd been at Fredericksburg, seen the Union defeat, and made his way back to DC to report the news. When he arrives, he actually runs into a Massachusetts senator. Villard tells in the news, the senator goes to tell Lincoln, but Lincoln says, let me talk to this reporter myself.
0: And so the mud-bespattered, exhausted Henry Villard is taken to the White House, and that's how Lincoln gets some of his first news, that you know the army and his administration now are in really pretty deep trouble.
1: He's devastated.
0: One of the people who observes Lincoln when Lincoln receives word of the disaster in Fredericksburg is partway convinced that Lincoln may actually lose his mind. Lincoln is that distraught.
1: The question now is...
0: Given the defeat at Fredericksburg, is the government in a strong enough position to, say, the Emancipation Proclamation still goes? Is the situation strong enough for Lincoln to put his signature on the document on New Year's Day.
1: That's in three weeks' time. Lincoln also has tenuous support in Congress, plus there's rancor and infighting within his own cabinet, which is about to make things a lot worse.
0: Everything seems to be falling apart at once. And Lincoln says, in fact, if there is a worse place than hell, I am in it.
1: It also touches off a political crisis. A few days after the president hears news about what's happened in Virginia, he gets an unexpected visit. Two men come to the White House with a letter. One is a senator. The other is the son of Secretary of State William Seward. Seward, remember, had been in the carriage on that July day when Lincoln first confided that he was planning to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And he's one of the president's most trusted advisors. Lincoln opens the letter. It's from Seward, offering his resignation.
0: When Lincoln receives this letter of resignation, he's caught utterly flat-footed. He can barely speak, and he, he simply says, what does this mean?
1: Over the course of the next day or two, he begins to figure out exactly what is going on. It hinges on another cabinet member, Treasury Secretary Salmon P.
0: Chase. — Chase is the guy who is constantly, at least figuratively, sneaking down the back stairs and spreading dangerous and deleterious rumors about the administration in Congress. —
1: He tells them the cabinet is falling apart, and he blames it on one person in particular, Secretary Seward. Chase had become suspicious of Seward's closeness with the president, perhaps also jealous, He tells senators that he believes Seward is secretly controlling Lincoln and that he's not loyal enough to the war effort. Seward had supported that previous general, McClellan, and so some senators were disposed to believe this. And then Fredericksburg happens.
0: The Republican senators are really overcome with panic. And they need a scapegoat. And the person that they choose is uh, Secretary of State Seward.
1: Republicans, the president's own party— decide that they're gonna hold a vote of no confidence in the Secretary of State. Seward hears about this before it happens, and he decides to resign. He worries that if he doesn't, Lincoln will be in an impossible position. If he accepts this vote of no confidence and fires Seward, he could look weak to the nation, like he's bending to Congress's will, letting them decide who should be in his cabinet. But if he doesn't fire Seward, then that'll add fuel to this idea that Seward has too much influence, that Lincoln is in his pocket. Seward thinks that resigning will get rid of the whole issue, but it doesn't because Lincoln still has a choice to make. Should he accept this resignation or not? If he doesn't, it again, looks like he's in Seward's pocket. But if he does, the country gets the message that Lincoln's cabinet is falling apart.
0: This is an actual existential disaster going to the very level of the continuity of Lincoln's administration.
1: And that could not come at a worse moment. Lincoln is just weeks away from issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, and his government needs to look strong and unified. Because ultimately, the proclamation is just a piece of paper. If the public doesn't trust the government behind it— it'll be pretty much useless.
0: It is one of those very, very low moments for Lincoln. In fact, he says to one of his confidants, we are now on the brink of destruction. I can hardly see a ray of hope.
1: To make matters worse, the next evening, December 18th, a committee of Republican senators comes to see Lincoln at the White House. These are the same men who want to get rid of Seward. And now they have even more demands. They want the cabinet to have more power over decisions and Lincoln to have less.
0: And you can imagine what this is like for a president of the United States, you know to be told that it is the will of his own party or some of the most important people in his party that he fundamentally no longer be in charge. In fact, Lincoln says about these Republican senators, that they really seem to want me gone and I have half a mind to oblige them. And so even the the idea of resignation passes through Lincoln's mind at this critical point.
1: But in the room that night, Lincoln just listens calmly for about three hours.
0: Lincoln is a man of extreme self-control. And so when he says goodbye to them, they are actually under the impression that he is, according to one of them, cheerful and pleased with the interview. But Lincoln's wheels are turning.
1: The next morning, he calls a special meeting of the Cabinet. Everyone except Seward.
0: Because he realizes that he can defend Seward better if Seward is not there than if Seward is.
1: Lincoln tells his Cabinet that Seward has submitted a resignation letter. The mood is somber.
0: If you were a member of the Cabinet, you would probably be feeling a lot of remorse and regret because you know here's the president saying that, that he's really kind of shocked and grieved by the information that he's received.
1: Lincoln is shocked and grieved, but Madison told us he's also using these emotions strategically.
0: Lincoln seems to have been a pretty good psychologist. He seems really to have known well the kinds of behavior and the kinds of pleas to guilt or to solidarity or what have you, that were going to produce the the most positive results for him.
1: So he also reassures the cabinet.
0: He says to them, I've always been consoled. I've always been sustained by the good feeling and the confidence and the zeal that have pervaded this cabinet. And whether that's true or not is a little bit more of a question. But Lincoln is, I think, at this moment, playing a little bit of the guilt card. And it works actually extremely well.
1: Salmon P. Chase, in particular, is starting to squirm. He's the rat here, the person who stirred up trouble between the Cabinet and the Congress in the first place. He told those senators that the Cabinet was in crisis, Seward was poisonous, everything was falling apart. But now, here the president is saying the opposite in front of everyone, making this passionate speech about how the cabinet, in his mind, is harmonious and buoyed by good feeling, confidence, and zeal. And then Lincoln makes his next move. He says, let's call those senators in to tell them that. Chase is in trouble now. Everyone he's talked to is going to be in the same room, but he's told them all quite different things— He tries to get the meeting called off, but no dice. Later that evening, the senators come in, sit down, and Lincoln turns to them and says,
0: I've talked with my cabinet. They don't seem to think that there are any particular problems. Isn't that right?
1: The cabinet members all say, yep, that's right.
0: Chase is absolutely quietly fuming at this point.
1: But what can he do? He's backed into a corner. He admits that, yes, in many ways, things are actually going well. The cabinet is not falling apart.
0: And it's just that appearance of unity that starts to cause the committee's resolve to start to fumble and crumble.
1: The senators are mollified. But the cabinet, in the wake of all this turmoil, is actually in crisis. Seward's resignation is still pending. Chase is furious. Other cabinet members feel caught off guard by the whole thing. And rumors are swirling around Washington that Lincoln's government is falling apart, meaning that with just a few weeks to go until January 1st, the Emancipation Proclamation is still under threat.
0: But then the great thing happens, and that is the next morning, Chase is so infuriated by what Lincoln has done to him by putting him on the spot that Chase now goes to Lincoln with his letter of resignation. And Lincoln's eyes light up. He grabs for the letter of resignation, takes it out of Chase's hands, and and he's jubilant. Why? Not because he wants Chase to resign. No, it's because he now has a letter of resignation from both his guy and his antagonist, and he can refuse to accept both of them and simply appear even-handed before Congress rather than looking like he's, you know, doing special favors for Secretary Seward.
1: A few days before the Christmas holiday, the cabinet has reconciled, all nine members intact. Seward even invites Chase over for Christmas Eve dinner, though Chase respectfully declines.
0: What impresses me over and over again when I review these critical days of the Lincoln administration, it is that When he needs to, Lincoln can have ice water in his veins, he can be polite and respectful to his enemies, and he can always, always take the long view, not do what feels good in the instant, but do what is good for himself, for the administration, for the country, by taking a few deep breaths and looking at the long view.
1: New Year's Day, 1863 President Lincoln spends the morning in ceremonial duties for the holiday, shaking lots of hands.
0: His writing hand is swollen because he's been shaking so many hands. And this concerns him because he wants his signature on the Emancipation Proclamation to be a solid, strong, you know, unwavering-looking signature. In fact, he says that I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing right than I do in signing this paper.
1: So he grasps the pen.
0: Firmly signs a bold, clear, firm signature, even for him. And this is the happy ending to, um, well, the happy beginning, shall we say, of the emancipation story.
1: It is just the beginning. Remember, this proclamation only applies in states that are in rebellion against the Union states where Union troops only control a few areas. Word about emancipation won't even make it to Texas, at the far reaches of the Confederacy, for two more years. That's the moment celebrated today as Juneteenth. But there is some immediate impact from the proclamation, even if it's symbolic. At midnight on January 1st, the crowd at a Black church in New York breaks into, quote, "'tumultuous cheers.'" Cities throughout the North celebrate with a hundred cannon salute. In the Confederate States, more and more formerly enslaved people begin to flee plantations. Some join up with the Union army. And despite its practical limitations, the symbolic effects of the Emancipation Proclamation are important. The document changes the meaning of the war, making it indisputably a war against slavery. It also lays the groundwork for the 13th Amendment, which in 1865 abolishes slavery in the U.S. President Lincoln, though, doesn't live to see it. Soon after Lincoln is assassinated, the American poet Walt Whitman writes one of his most beloved and oft quoted poems, O Captain, My Captain. It's dedicated to the memory of Lincoln and captures this moment of national mourning. Whitman famously describes a ship arriving at port after weathering a storm. The captain dead on
0: the deck. Oh, bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead.
1: Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are listening, and we love to hear from you. Special thanks today to our guest, Professor John Madison, author of A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. We could only cover a small part of this expansive book, which goes into a lot more depth about the stories of several famous American characters during the time of Fredericksburg. Check it out. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Bill Moss. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. And our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. History This Week, November 10th, 2021. (laughs) Next week, in honor of our 100th episode, History This Week takes on trivia. Our team even went out to try it for ourselves. I'm gonna switch it. Oh, are you oh, sure? Are you no, sure? No, there's no water in Yosemite, is there? I think yellow is my first choice. But we don't know. We're, we're just say, guessing. That- oh, we were so, so- in the episode, we dive into the history of trivia with Jeopardy champion Ken Jennings.
2: I was afraid it was a trick question. No, no, just an easy one
1: for you, Ken Jennings. Listen to history this week. Next Monday, December 13th, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I've been stumped, but I have the, I have the ultimate revenge of him having been dead for 100 years.
1: <laughs> Great point.
0: Planning for your next trip?